Welcome to Dave's Psychology Lectures from Algoma University. I'm Dave Broadbeck. The following lecture is from uh, Psychology 4006. It's a new one for everybody. Don't you uh, go bragging about how much you've seen. You haven't seen a thing. Don't even waste my time with anecdotes from Jackson's home. Don't bother me with your dream about a million dollars. Okay, so today we're talking about behaviorism. Uh, uh, one of the important isms in the history of isms. Okay. You got to start with Pavlov, and today's reading, and I said that to you guys, is about Pavlov. And uh, the, remember, the question I asked you guys is, would you consider Pavlov a behaviorist? We can put that off, obviously, for now. We'll talk about it after we're, uh, after I'm finished. But there are his dates, so 49 to 36. So uh, pretty tumultuous time in Russia. Russia goes from being a feudal state, and I mean literally feudal. There were lords and serfs. Like, like medieval England to uh, a communist revolution and then, oh, right around the time when Stalin started just killing people because he, he was paranoid. So there's uh, Ivan Petrovich Pavlov. Um, <coughs> like most people at that time, when you want to be an intellectual, you want to get an education beyond sort of the standard undergraduate education, you either become an MD or a priest slash minister, which is what he was going for. Uh, he read, read Darwin, however, and that changed his life. Also read um, Sechenov, and Sechenov and is the father of experimental medicine in Russia. In a lot of respects, he's the father of experimental medicine. He doesn't get the credit outside of Russia that he deserves, but he's one of the first guys to actually do think about evidence-based medicine. He's one of the first guys to think about studying physiology and doing it, doing experiments with it. We would recognize the work he did today as sort of experimental physiology uh, very easily. It wasn't just case studies, he was actually doing science. So he gets his degree in medicine in 1983, um, and he becomes the, there you go, director of uh, experimental medicine in St. Petersburg, not Florida, Russia. That would be weird if you moved to St. Petersburg, Florida. <laughs> he starts doing research on digestion, of course, and you know the rest. Um, he's looking at salivation, salivary reflex. As you probably know, when you put food in your mouth, if you're a you, a human, or a dog, or a lot of other mammals, um, you start to salivate. Saliva contains digestive enzymes, including you know, salivary amylase that breaks down carbohydrates and sugars. And this is a neat little trick you can do. Take a piece of, um, let's say, a soda cracker with no salt on it. Chew it, just let it sit in your tongue. It'll start to taste sweet after about 45 seconds because the starches are breaking down in sugars. The same thing will happen with a piece of potato. No, no salt, no butter. Just put a piece of potato in your mouth and let it just sit there. And it'll start to taste sweetness. No, don't cook it. I love gross. Yeah, I would do that. <laughs> like, you, eat, you eat raw potatoes? Yeah. Really? Isn't that kind of hard to digest? No. I don't know. My mom used to get them to me and my brother trying to stop them for soccer. Really? Yeah. Really? Okay. I like it. That's fine. Look, everybody, I don't, people's taste, I don't ever, um, comment on people's tastes, except that it's a little odd. But I don't think they're wrong or anything, because they're called tastes and not fats. It's like, you, you may not like your steak bloody rare like I do, which makes you a Philistine, but that's the way you like it. You know, you like that kind of music? Great, I think it's crap, but go ahead. Uh, it makes people happy. It takes a long time to come to that. Well, in my 40s, I think, I find that. Like, remember you're in high school and all you care about, like, someone like a different band than you, they're obviously some sort of fascist. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean you don't like? And insert band in here. You don't know anything, you're stupid. People do that well into their 30s, a lot of people. It's like arguing over what sports team you like. It's like, I like Montreal sports teams because my dad did. And I realize it's completely irrational. But you go find you like your own, I don't care. People are weird. That's why I like working with animals. 
So as working on celebrity reflex, the conditioning stuff is uh, basically serendipity. Automatic, uh, it's got tubes in. We all have this wonderful, cute idea that Pavlov is ringing a bell and the dog is, saliva's coming off its tongue and it's, no, there's actually tubes drilled right into the dog's snout underneath and it's collecting saliva. Okay, and it's not a bell, it's a buzzer in the automatic feeding machine. It was a, the thing that put the meat powder in the mouth made a noise. That's a beautiful myth that there was a bell. My friend Roy Hoster, who's in the talk uh, this class back in Newfoundland, actually, we, he and I looked at a whole bunch, trying to figure out where the myth came from. We found a picture of Pavlov in his lab, and there's a bell there. And we figured it was just a bell to call everybody to meetings, but everybody, you know, so that's, that's, I think that's where the bell comes from. When's a little thing called the Nobel Prize, which is pretty good. So we can take credit with a lot of psychologists. He's the first psychologist. But Pavlov was not a psychologist. He was a physiologist. Again, though, in 1904, <coughs> there weren't psychologists there much anymore, especially in Russia. So his idea is he replicated the work. This is an important thing. He does, when you read Pavlov, which, by the way, if you are having trouble sleeping, you pick up a copy of Conditioned Reflexes. Holy crap, is it boring. There's some killer science in it. Holy, you can't even begin to... First of all, it's translated from Russian and not really well. Indeed, it should be called conditional reflexes, not conditioned reflexes. We get the term conditioning because someone mistranslated the Russian. It should be conditional. That makes sense, right? It's conditional. The reflex is conditional on something happening. The response is conditional. So, except we said it's conditioned. In other words, oh, there's conditioning. All that whole term... If it wasn't the case, that mistranslation, we have a different name for this, and conditioning would just be what you did to your hair after you put the shampoo in. <laughs> right? But he replicates stuff, and if you read it, as boring as the work is, he replicates it over and over. Um, he looks at things very carefully, the acquisition of a conditioned response. There are chapters. The book is from 1927, well after it's done, it first published. Uh, a bunch of his lectures get published, translated into English and published. So the, I know, at least I know the, the copy I have which is the, the 27 translation. That's the one most people use. People knew about him already. Academics knew about him. I looked at the extinction of a condition response, of course, generalization, discrimination. The classic stuff y'all learn about in learning class. Anybody here taken learning? I don't think any of you were learning two years ago when I last time I taught it. Yeah. And last next year, Gloria's taking it from me. Next semester? Next no, year. next year. Sadly, I love teaching learning. It's good stuff, but you have to move. You all have to be nice and magnanimous and let other people teach things. I like it because there's always right and wrong answers. There's no. On the downside, it's some of the stuff so old that it's difficult for it. One of the neat things he said is he found something with um, his dogs called experimental neurosis. That the dog would start act, behaving very strangely. If a, a discrimination was too difficult. So you know what discrimination learning is, right? There's S plus and S minus. S plus is uh, salivate to a tone of 440 hertz. And S minus is don't salivate, or you don't get food, I'm sorry, to a tone of 445 hertz. That's actually pretty hard. 444, 445, let's pretend that's hard. I don't know. Maybe it's really easy for a dog. But if they can't discriminate between those two, they then start doing things like walking around in circles in their cage, behaving very strangely. He called this experimental neurosis. So he thought about, first of all, using the word neurosis, which is a Freud term. Uh, and he also starts thinking about human behavior. Okay? Anybody here know anything about Russian naming conventions? Okay, probably not. That means his father's name was Peter. <coughs> it's your middle name, and then you get Ovich. So, I mean, David Richardovich Rodbeck. My name is actually a researcher. I'm asking the Russian. 
my son would be Jonathan Davidovich Rodnick, except his name is actually the middle name, actually is David and Darwin. Was that? Just casually throw the term. Well, it's got to be there. That was, that was the that was the uh, deal. That was the deal. That was the uh, I guess I guess we call it a compromise. <laughs> so, you know, the Soviet Union starts in 1917. Um, they love Pavlov, and like most revolutionary movements. They usually, the first thing you do in your revolutionary movement you take over is you kill the intellectuals because they might dissent because they're smart and they don't like being told how to think. So when the Bolsheviks take over in 1917, one of the things they do is they purges because it's Russia. They do purges. It's a Russian thing to do. And no, it is. I mean, like, look at Russian history. It's, Russian history is pretty bloody. Um, they kill a lot of academics. They don't kill Pavlov. Pavlov's famous is the first thing. Like, he's won a Nobel Prize. They were ideological, but that's stupid. That's the same thing with, I mean, the later on in the 1960s, 70s, uh, Russian scientists would often dissent from the, the central government. They didn't kill them, they often put them off in little places where they were never seen again. Um, it's actually really consistent with the Soviet mission, the idea of conditioning people to like communism. Also, communism is a very blank slate type idea. Right? If we just have the right environment for revolution, we will get revolution, that kind of thing. And that fits really nicely with an idea of hooking up reflexes in new ways. So ideologically new. Uh, Pavlov, however, they liked him, they funded him really well. It's like in St. Petersburg, which in 1924 gets renamed Leningrad, which in 1991 gets renamed St. Petersburg again. They, 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 they fund him well, and he doesn't like them. But he can actually tell them to go to hell, but I'll take your rubles, and they don't put him off in the gulag. Because he's famous, and because they like his work. He really didn't like the communists at first. And he probably never did like the communists, but... It became pretty clear in the 1930s, well, there's two things. First of all, we've got the, the, the ominous threat of Nazi Germany and the clear idea that they want Russia. That's in Mein Kampf. I mean, that's, that's the idea that anybody thought that that wasn't going to happen is a little crazy. Though everybody thought Hitler was just bluffing. <coughs> no, I'm serious. Except, except it's true. Except for Winston Churchill, everyone was like, no, oh, he's just bluffing. He's just saying things. That's that crazy Hitler. He doesn't want to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. That's wacky. That's Trump. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, Trump is more Muslim. But there's that, plus the fact that in the 1930s, Stalin's in power. And Stalin's kind of not a nice man either. Stalin just, you, you got to really... People didn't know if tomorrow they'd get arrested. And that was anybody, by the way, during the 30s. Horrible purges in the 30s. So there's also that. It was like, I'm, I'm going to shut my mouth down and just take the rubles and do the work because um, Stalin's mean. And by mean, I mean a genocidal maniac, by the way. He was pretty bad. So it shut him up. Keep doing the work, though. And they let him travel, which was not something that most totalitarian governments don't like to travel, but he was famous enough that they wanted to show him off to the world. Okay, so that's Pavlov, and you kind of can't talk about behaviors without mentioning Pavlov. Like I said, today we'll talk later on, do we think Pavlov is a behaviorist? So John Watson is the guy who starts, who uses, first guy who uses the term behaviorism, he's an American, we talked a little bit about Watson, there he is there, lives into the almost 1960. Um, he trained, he was a, basically a functionalist because he was at the University of Chicago. We'll talk about that. They're all functionalists there. Um, and his PhD was looking at brain development and learning ability in rats. So, what he's doing is he's, 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 he's uh, testing rats on a maze. He's looking at their brains to see, and it's very gross anatomy. I don't know if it's just looking at how thick cortex is, things like that. I'm looking at their learning ability in various phases. 
1903 to 1908, he goes again to Chicago, which is, uh, so that's where he, where he uh, went to school. He then gets on faculty. This was a lot more common, it used to be a lot more common than it is now. The idea of, oh, I went to graduate school here, now there's a job here for me. There's a couple reasons here. First of all, there's not a whole lot of PhDs in psychology. Uh, the second thing is there's not a whole lot of places she get jobs. So when you get a good graduate student's PhD, they get a job. You hardly ever see that anymore. It's not a thing. Um, I mean, my PhD supervisor got her uh, PhD with a job with a And so did another guy who went to the lab next door, Dave Sherry. His PhD at U of T and got a job at U of T. But you don't know a lot of people that do that. It's pretty uncommon. It's pretty uncommon. I think we talked about the maze studies he did with Carr. Uh, very complicated mazes like this. Uh, the rat has to learn this maze. It's all about outcomes. It's functionalism. It's classic functionalism. So it's not really about what's going on in the rat's mind. And I think we can make the point that functionalism, that behaviorism grows out of functionalism. Functionalism is about outcomes. Behaviorism is about outcomes. It's not about process, really. Right. So what's the main difference, though? How do you mean? You just said functionalism is all about outcomes, but behaviorism is about outcomes. And behaviorism is about outcomes as well. Yeah. Structuralism is about process. Right? Because it's about all the parts and how they go together. That's the Titchener inspired by Wundt, but probably not really. Uh, he probably. But it's like Titchener. That, that, those, that kind of ilk. And they're looking at process. And I think as a. I don't know where I want to use. When behaviors eventually takes over. It goes after structuralism and says, this is bad because it's all about introspection. Which is true because that's what was going on. The downside of that is you kill the introspection, but then you, why, you don't have to say, and the guys and the horse that rode in on it. You don't have to kill the horse, which is structuralism. Right? The idea of looking at the structure of learning, the parts. Watson's like, Watson, Skinner, these guys, and we'll talk more about this today, they don't care. There's a stimulus, there's a response. It's all about outcomes. Okay. Good question. So, behaviorism, like I said, it's a radical new idea. He gets to Johns Hopkins. So now it's 1908 to 1920. So for 12 years, he's a faculty member at Johns Hopkins. Um, he keeps doing animal studies because they're easier to work with. <coughs> Watson would tell you that people in it were just, we're all machines. We're all machines. Did lab work, did some field work, so going into, say, schools, going into nursery schools, things like that, looking at kids. In 1913, he published this article in, I think, Psych Bulletin called uh, The Behaviorist Manifesto. So it's like, this is how things work. This is what we should be doing in psychology. We're doing too much of this introspection crap, this structuralism. That's no good. It's just people sitting in chairs thinking about how they think, and then I can't disprove it anyway. So get rid of consciousness, get rid of introspection, and you know what? Yeah, I agree. Speaking from 2016, these are things that are very, using introspection in the Titchenerian sense to study consciousness, which I think is unstudiable. I'm for this. I think this is great. I think he's doing us a great service here. I mean, how would you study consciousness? I don't know how you study it. I don't even know how to be defined. Well, I can even, well, I can define it. Self-awareness. Sure. That's good. How do we test that? When you can, and, and if you can figure that out, the Nobel people will call you. You don't even have to tell them. Like, that's a big problem. And you know, I remember sitting in a, in a, uh, what's his name, the, the, the graduate seminar, and Endel Tolving, who, you know, huge name in the history of study of memory, um, 
was a factor in UFT at the time, and he was presenting this stuff, and he said that episodic memory needed consciousness. And Pat Bennett, who's now the chair of the department at McMaster, who was a young faculty member then at UFT, said, what's consciousness? And everybody looks at Pat like, well, that was gutsy, because that's a book And uh, he said, well, we all know what it means. And he said, Endo, that's not good enough. I remember sitting there thinking to myself, that's a great thing to say. And he's a faculty member, so he can A call him Endel and B say that's not good enough. Um, the rest of us were going, yes, very quietly. Because powerful history of psycho- powerful man in the history of psychology just said something, and a young upstart guy just said, no. That was pretty cool. So I think it's good that he did this. Um, <coughs> then he gets stupid. Thinking, you know, your internal monologue is just sub-vocal speech. You're actually talking, you just can't hear. So you know like your internal monologue? Right? Like right now I'm thinking, I guess I picked the wrong day of barbecue. <laughs> Probably not gonna happen today. Probably sear that pork in a pan. Okay, yeah, that'll all work out. Those things go on in the back of my mind. Now it's not an internal monologue anymore. Now you know what I'm actually thinking about when I'm teaching. In fact, he did experiments where he got paralyzed with curare, which is a acetylcholinesterase antagonist. So if the right man will just paralyze you too much, we'll kill you. Um, and, uh, and then he reported that he could still think and sort of other subjects. But he sort of ignored that, which is great. Well, he still he still doing this? Yeah, yeah. To other people and to himself. He did to his credit, he had it done to himself too. No, no, he was paralyzed. Like no, but after it Oh yeah, where's off? Yeah, yeah. It's like an anesthesia. Yeah, it used to be used um but you're awake. It used to be used before anesthetics, it was used to stop people from moving. We did things like, you know, anti-over a limb. C sections, exactly. I was I was thinking more wartime stuff, but yeah, yeah. Hmm? You don't feel anything. Oh, no, you feel it. You just can't, you can't move. You can't move. Yeah. You just take it. You just, well, you have to take it because you can't move. You can't do anything about it. You can probably talk, can't you? Can you well, no, it's just, just sub-vocal speech. Yeah, you can't talk. Oh. You're just like... Would you pass out if you still felt the pain? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, eventually the, sh- the, the, the pain would, would take you out. Yeah. yeah. See, so what they... Well, that's not understanding. Before, about the 19... Oh, sorry, 1860s... The way when you get an operation, if you had to get an operation, which you usually did because medicine was horrible, but battlefield medicine changes everything in the 1860s in the American Civil War, and also the Crimean War, you know, <coughs> and all that stuff. And what happens is they finally have discovered a couple things. You can use curare and give people either opium or a great deal of alcohol. And so they're, 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 it numbs you because you're so wasted and you can't move. And then they can, for example, uh, if, if it's a battlefield, they can say, you can lose the leg, you don't lose the patient. War moves the technology and science really quickly. And one of the things that it was, it, it saved a lot of lives uh, of soldiers, but it wasn't pleasant. And then it was, you know, take this, bite down on it. <laughs> they didn't have any curare, because I'm going to now saw your leg off. Wouldn't that call be ineffective, though, because it thins your blood and you would just bleed more? Oh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty crude stuff, you gotta understand. And also, they wouldn't even know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, war, war moves medicine. But yeah, so he's curare. And he's still, he can still speak. But he said, ah, it's, uh, I don't know, whatever. And uh, he didn't ever go away from the subvocal speech thing. He said, what we should study is overt behavior. I like that too. And I think we probably all like that. Uh, I will say, however, that if I say study over behavior, I still infer the mechanisms. And he wouldn't like that. If I, you got a goal, your, your goal is given S, predict R. Given a stimulus, predict the response. And given the response, predict the stimulus. Prediction and control, two of the most important things in science, that's great. I think that in a lot of respects, what he's doing is saying, Look, we can't do this other stuff. Let's do what's doable. Let's do what's possible. 
It becomes an ideology is the problem. Like most isms, it becomes an ideology. Um, there's a lot of promise of application here. There's, there's, there's you know, uh, kids in, in school. There's education. You know, Watson said, give me 12 boys and I can give you 12 men. In other words, I can, if I can control their, their, their reinforcement history, I can change who they are. I can make one president. I can make one a thief. I can make one... <coughs> Whatever. He gives an address to the ADA in 1915. You can actually find it in Psychological Review uh, because they give this APA presidential address. It's always in Psych Review. <coughs> he gives this speech, and it's uh, the paper's entitled Psychology as the Behavior Sees It. Yeah, classic paper. Uh, he's basically saying all the stuff you expect him to say. And he showed that you could have effective. control of behavior. So he demonstrates this. Publishes papers, does experiments. Famous paper, of course, with his assistant, Rosalind Rayner, the Little Albert study. Right? So you take a kid and you make him afraid of something nice by scaring him, a uh, bunny, right? It's a bunny, you think? Make him afraid of that by pairing him with something scary. Yeah. So that wasn't child abuse. So, um, it's a horrible, it's a horrible experiment. Did Little Albert die when he was like 12 or something? I, I don't know that anybody knows what happened to Little Albert. I've read a lot of things about people searching for Little Albert too. There are pictures of Rainer and a little boy, but that's not Albert. That's been determined. Uh, I read a paper, oh jeez. The paper we read, it kind of confused me more about Albert they don't know a lot. I don't think they know really who the kid is. Yeah. Right? I think so. I've read different things. Yeah, this is, this is what I'm saying. That he's young, but I know, like, consistently they say he died young. Like, one person said he died when yeah. he was, like, 12. Another said, well, he died at an early age of 35. Well, it's not early. Why is it? In terms of lifespan. Yeah, he wasn't, I don't know, like, it, it's, it's hard to know. Um... What happened? You just at this point. Like I said, I've heard competing things. Is all. All right. So that's where it was there. Okay. Watson. Um, he worked really closely with Rainer. Really closely with her. Okay. He had an affair with her, and he was married. So he was kind of asked to resign. He was told, "You're fired, or you can quit." So he leaves Johns Hopkins for a while. He actually moves to Mexico. And he's a faculty member there, I guess, because they're just like, I don't care. You don't care if you're sleeping with somebody. Who's your wife? Just go do your science. So he stays there for a while, but he wants to come back to the States. He goes and changes. He, 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 instead of doing science anymore, he becomes a popularizer of behaviorism. And he go, moves into advertising where he meets Don Draper. Um, Mad Men, anyone? No? So he's doing market research. One of the first people to actually do market research. Because he, and in fact, today, a lot of people with psych degrees end up doing market, working in market research companies because they need people who understand how to do the science. A lot of people in marketing kind of things don't understand how to do science very well. But that's not another drink. Right? My wife worked for a market research company in Toronto when I was in graduate school. And they Christmas party, which had the free liquor. Uh, I was talking to the, well, Isabel had told me that they did a study, and she could never tell me what the companies were, but they test commercials. And she said, the focus group comes in, they watch five commercials, and then they tell us details about each commercial, and we see which one's the most memorable, and you hope always it's the clients. I said, so what do you do? You just do them in different words for everybody? Well, no, everybody gets the same five words. I said, oh, so you're in the, the, the last one best, the first one second, and the middle one not at all, right? And she said, how did you know that? I said, I took it to a psych. Right? It wasn't her experiment. She designed it. I said, you just need a psychologist or someone to take it to a psych and say, can't balance it, man. Really, it's easy. 
So I then told, in a drunken stupor, told the owner of the company, I said, you should get 200 bucks. I will consult. <laughs> he was actually a pretty good guy, but he didn't ever take me up on the offer. So he gets into market research, uh, ad campaigns based on emotions. Based on, again, I will pair, this is classic learning, right? I will pair a product with an emotion. And then when I have that emotion, I want the product. <laughs> Very Don Draper. So he popularizes behaviorism. He writes a lot of articles in magazines like The Atlantic. Today, he would be somebody who was writing in... He'd be a Huffington Post blogger today. Okay. Not one of the shitty ones that don't get paid, like one of the people that actually... Wait a second, that's everybody on Huffington Post. BuzzFeed. He'd be working at BuzzFeed. They have a news division, they have commentary stuff, or Vox, or Vice, or something like that. That's what he, he was doing that at the Atlantic. Well, it still exists, and it's great reading, except people don't read it like they read Vox, or Vice, or BuzzFeed. <laughs> um, he writes a book called Behaviorism in 1924. Since four years after, he's asked to leave his job. And it's, a pop, it's popularizing the notion of behaviorism and how it's important to the whole world. Um, it's about the importance of the environment, of course, which is a very, the environment shapes the person, a very American idea, everybody's equal. We had a book called Psychological Care of the Infant and Child that became very popular, which involved things like having a very formal relationship with your kids, shake hands with them, don't hug them, almost a business-casual relationship with your children, not a loving mother and son, father and son, daughter, etc. No. Which probably doesn't work very well. It's a rational parenting strategy, not an emotional one. And those of you here who are parents realize that you try to be rational, but you're always emotional with your kids. You can't not be. And there always are times when you eventually comes down to this. This isn't a democracy, actually. <laughs> I get to make these decisions. You don't. Oh, I'll listen to your concerns. <laughs> well argued. Go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, you know, uh, John often says to me, don't tell me what to do. And I always say the same thing to him. I actually get to tell you what to do. It's in the job description. Once you hit about 18 and you're a legal adult, look, I can't really tell you what to do. But I still will. If you live in my house, I probably will. I will suggest it very strongly. But I do remember actually saying to Maddie when she said, why do I have to brush my teeth until four? And I said, because I said so, it'll go to cavities, if you know, it'll hurt, it's a horrible thing. So you really should do it. But I don't want to. Well, I don't care. <laughs> Brushing your teeth. That's not fair. I said, I don't know. Wait, did you think, was there a thing that said life was fair? It's not fair. Brushing your teeth. I know more than you. I know more than you. You do. Your kids are stupid. You don't understand. As Homer Simpson said, if kids weren't so stupid, they'd be adults already. Kids don't know anything. That's why they're kids. We teach them stuff. It's a huge responsibility, too. They don't understand our culture. But one day they'll take over. Scary. Yeah, that's the thing. So Watson leaves, well, he's asked to leave. But he's up to with the popular science stuff. He's, you might say he's the Neil deGrasse Tyson of behaviorism. Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't publish scientific articles anymore. He doesn't have an academic job. He works at a planetarium. But he's a really good science popularizer. Really good. Better than Watson. Like Watson, I've never heard his podcast at all. Nothing. So, we get, I guess, a lot of people call it neo-behaviorism or radical behaviorism. And this is Skinner's approach. We're going to operationalize, operationalize everything. See, essentialism is the notion that we can get down to the real meaning of things. The real... And it's kind of a structuralist notion. And the idea that 
well, what's really happening? Well, what's really happening? And usually in science, we aren't essentialists. We're actually operations. We say, can we measure it? We'll define it by how we measure it. We'll go from there. This allows you to replicate work. And we get these operations. Different labs will do things different ways, but they'll converge, converging operations. Um, so the same output outcomes rather result from multiple operational definitions of the same construct. That's what that means. Like I was just saying, different labs do it somewhat differently. They operation define things a little bit differently, but they're doing the same construct. And that leads to progress. So within behaviorism, there was real consensus on an evolutionary continuum, the idea that we are animals, and that we operate by the same rules. And that learning and conditioning was the focus. It's a nurture focus, even though it says there's nature. It's interesting because the idea that the sort of blank slate idea is, a really, is really counter to everything about how biology works. But psychology and biology weren't good friends back then. It's not like today. So Skinner shows up, apparently one of the nicest men you'd ever meet, by the way. A friend of mine did his PhD with B.F. Skinner, said he was just, he could do whatever he wanted as long as it was, it made sense and it was, it worked. And another friend of mine who's met him just said he was, and went up and got his autograph at a conference and he was apparently just the nicest man you would ever meet. John Watson was an asshole. All accounts of him are he was a horrible, horrible man. Right? Even Don Draper from Mad Men had some redeeming qualities. I don't think Watson did. I'm watching Mad Men. Again, that's, that's all it says. Um, but apparently Skinner, super nice guy. Here he is. Look at him. He's got some pigeons, just saying. <laughs> Gets his PhD from Harvard. Becomes a university fellow, which is kind of a postdoc uh, doing research. Writes a book, uh, a treatise, shall we call it, called The Behavior of Organisms. This is a behaviorist. This is an updating behaviorism. He talks about there's two kinds of conditioning. Type S conditioning, which is Pavlovian. Two stimuli will point, uh, paired together. Condition stimulus or condition stimulus. And he says type R conditioning or operant conditioning. Um, this is behavior produces predictable consequences. This is... And he, he said that the majority of behavior is actually this type of conditioning, not type S. Majority of things we would call voluntary behavior fall into this one. Goes to the University of Minnesota for nine years. You usually think that. You always think of him as from Harvard. Um, and then he goes to Indiana for four years as a department head. He's famous at this point, he's a big deal. And he's a Midwestern guy, so I think he probably wanted to go back to that part of the world. But he eventually returns to Harvard in 1948, and he's there until 1990. I mean, I remember the day he died, and we were all sat in the lab. It was like, oh, gee, if you have Skinner died? That's weird. Because now and then, even like when I was an undergrad in grad school, a, a paper would show up now and then, like uh, JF, the Journal of Experimental Analysis of Behavior. It was by B.F. Skinner. And you go, this is great, old tiny. You know? And wonderful. There you go. So, radical behaviorism is all about operant conditioning, it's about control, the controlled environment, the operant chamber. He invents the operant chamber, what we call a Skinner box. He never called it a Skinner box because he was an exceedingly humble man. On the other hand, I designed a touchscreen box that had a couple photo beams in it and a uh, solenoid powered feeder, and I wanted people to call it a broadback box. It never happened because I am not humble. Kidding. I'm a little humble. Just a little. So he looks at what's called the experimental analysis of behavior. A lot of times this work is in experiments, it's demonstrations. Here's what happens when I do this. It's about stimulus control. How can 
different stimuli control behavior. Did he ever oppose theory? Uh, he never talked about theory. A real true behaviorist, even today, doesn't like theory very much. Theory is structuralism. It still goes back to that. Theory is about introspection. It's about elements of cognition. <laughs> yeah, I can't say that aloud. Don't say that. <laughs> like, he couldn't even say it. I made that up, but I'm just saying he probably was I once went to a conference called Cognitive Aspects of Stimulus Control. I know, it sounds exciting. Um, I was 89, and I remember people, because Skinner was still alive, thinking, saying, you know, boy, it's a good thing we didn't invite Fred Skinner. He wouldn't have come anyway. It's an inductive instead of deductive type of work as well. The problem... He talked about what he called explanatory fictions. That's what theories are. And he said a lot of times what we're doing is we're just labeling things. The novel fallacy I talked about this before. We're just labeling things, and that's supposed to explain them. And of course, it doesn't. I think the example I've used before is why are women paid less than men? And the answer a lot of people give is sexism, and that's not an answer that he just gave it a name. It's like calling it Steve. You have to call it, sorry, I keep I've always said Steve. It's, it's, um, I'll use Eddie. I mean, that's the other one I often use is Eddie. It's like calling it Eddie. Yeah. Oh, it's Sarah's last one. <laughs> Marcel. There we go. No one's named Marcel, are they? I don't think so. We're good. And he says that's what's happening. It has a, a technological ideal, meaning the notion of almost technocracy, the idea that if we could design a perfect state on behaviorist thinking, we wouldn't even need a government. We would have people that did things, but that was because they was just all based on technology and their, their learning history. So it's predict, understand, also to control. That sounds bad and dystopian, but what it really is, is that's what science is. It's prediction and control. Except you were controlling behavior, and that sounds weird and dystopian. And so does the thing about technocracy, right? He did do some interesting work during the war, uh, World War II, Project Pigeon. The idea was to have pigeon-guided missiles. Uh, so what you do is you do a picture, you train the pigeon to peck, so it's got a picture, okay, of the, of the target. The pigeons aren't coming back from this, eh? Like, this is... Yeah. And all they're doing is looking at a screen and pecking go left, right, up, or down to make the, pic- the picture match what they're seeing on a, on a rudimentary TV screen. And that guy's the missile. And I mean, tests showed it was going to work. There were all kinds of interesting things being done during World War II, animal behavior type people. There were bat bombs. Bat bombs, you take bats, and you strap little tiny bits of incendiary explosives to their legs. So sad. We were fighting fascism. So, <laughs> so we lose some bats. I mean, you know, it was Hitler. We lose some bats. We also, a lot of good young men, and some women died in the war too, uh, fighting, and then there were also bombs to kill them that didn't care when they were their children. <laughs> we lost some bats. But, um, so, what happens is the bats, and then in Japan, most of the buildings are made of wood, so they burn. So, what you do is you unleash the bats. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, where the Batman came from? Yeah, I don't think so, but let's pretend it did. Uh, and then the bat bomb is released. It opens up, the bats fly, they, they roost underneath these, and then of course they explode, and it starts fire. The Allies found a much better way to obliterate Japanese cities, which was just incendiary bombs, and of course later to atomic bombs. Um, so psychologists were working heavily, and everybody, we can't even begin to fathom what it was like during World War II. I don't think the whole world is mobilized. You know, um, there's no way in this room there'd be any men. 
there would be me because I'm too old and I can't see very well, so I wouldn't be. But you guys wouldn't be here. There's just not a chance. And most of the women would, I don't know who'd be here. I'd be teaching to nobody. But I'd be safe, and that's the important thing. Um, I'd probably be working on Project Pigeon. Right? I have chickadees storing little tiny explosives in, in German cities. Um, so this stuff's applied, not pigeon-guided missiles, but these, these things are applied to, to teaching uh, and learning in schools. Pigeon-guided missiles. Eventually we invent real guided missiles that are done through, it's, you know, Again, World War One starts out. World War Two starts out with horse-drawn um, artillery, with cavalry, biplanes. It ends with jet fighters and real guided missiles and nuclear weapons. Six years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's things move fast. Wars do that. <clears throat> he even writes a book about this technocracy called World War Two. It's a horrible book. It's not really very well written. I've read it just because. I wrote this paper on behaviorism in fourth year, so I thought I might as well read this book. It's not a fun book. Uh, it came widely read, but it's this notion that we'll have this technocracy, and it's like a, a utopia, but it reads to me like I'm reading Brave New World. It's creepy. Okay, some conclusions about behaviorism. This is a huge thing in North America. Um... Not as much in Europe, but in North America, states and Canada, this is psychology. Except for the clinical stuff, though it does influence clinical stuff. Systematic sensitization, which by the way works. You know. It probably in a lot of respects saved psychology. It, it, it booted the Titianarian structuralist introspection out, and that's good, by the way. But it booted it really far, and that's bad. Um, indeed, my friend Jerry, who did his PhD with yeah, Skinner, used to say that at, in the Harvard Psychology Department, if, if you said, what's on your mind, someone would immediately correct you and say, what's on your behavior, not what's on your mind. We talk about behavior. We study behavior. The mind is an epiphenomenon. It doesn't matter. That said, the methods are used today. All the stuff about Skinner boxes, all the stuff about stimulus control, um, totally used today. Uh, people who, like, my thing's animal cognition. I, I think, I study how animals think. But I'll tell you this, um, I did it with, like, you know, I've done it always with Skinner boxes with the idea of overshadowing and stimulus control, discrimination, all that stuff. I totally buy that. Because the methods are great. Methods are great. And uh, recently, uh, Madeline, my daughter, texted me and said, how would I analyze these two birds' data? And I said, as B.F. Skinner said, averages tell us the behavior of no animal. Just present, because she was, it's early on. And I said, show your supervisor, how's it going? Draw some graphs, that'll be fine. That's what I do. Because we can look at how they're doing. Eventually, you need data analysis, of course. All right, questions about behaviorism before we talk about stuff. Good. This is a story you probably know. Before we talk about Have landed here, and they 
Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time.